My name is Justin Gage, and you're tuned in to the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions Podcast with your host, Jason Woodbury. Welcome back to Transmissions. Today on the show, I am joined by occult scholar Mitch Horowitz. He's the author of a staggering number of metaphysical books, including a favorite of mine, 2009's Occult America, which falls a little bit more into the historical category now that I mention it. Uh, It's a deeply researched tome that examines how America's alternative spiritualities and esoteric scenes, from Freemasonry to spiritualism and beyond, have influenced the country's politics, social movements, and general character. Traveling along the ins and outs of the psychic highway, Horowitz brings an even-handed and honest approach to topics concerning mysticism, parapsychology, new thought, and even, as we touch on a little bit, the study of unidentified aerial phenomena, or UFOs. Last fall, uh, I took a 12-week course on occult history with Mitch through the Theosophical Society, And it was a deeply helpful uh, primer regarding stuff that can be kind of tough to wrap your head around, actually, without an expert guide, uh, which I found him to be, not to mention a very entertaining one. Horowitz can currently be seen in the film The Kybalion, an adaptation of the 1908, 1908 occult manuscript, which explores the seven principles of hermetics, and his forthcoming book, Daydream Believer uh, is now available for pre-order, and the, the monkey's nod in the title is not unintentional. For our talk, I wanted to focus on Horowitz's relationship to music and its many ties to the occult, which led us to explore the music of Bad Brains, uh, his vast t-shirt collection, musical telepathy, and a lot more. Uh, but before we get into that, a quick word from our sponsor. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. Check them out at betterhelp.com slash aquariumdrunkard. The best way to think about therapy is to think about the concept of maintenance. We get our cars tuned up to prevent bigger issues down the road. We go get annual checkups and go to the gym to maintain physical wellness and prevent injury and disease. We do chores regularly to avoid a giant mess of a house and gross bugs. Going to therapy is just like this. It's routine maintenance for your mental and emotional wellness, which will help prevent bigger issues down the road. Going to therapy doesn't mean something's wrong with you. It means you're investing in yourself to keep your mind healthy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Why invest in everything else and not your mind? This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp, and Aquarium Drunkard listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash aquariumdrunkard. That's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash aquariumdrunkard. All right. Let's get into it. Here I am in conversation with Mitch Horowitz. Thanks for tuning in to Transmissions. Mitch, thanks so much for joining us here on the Aquarium Drunkard Transmissions podcast. It's a real, uh, it's a real treat to have you today. Thank you, man. Glad to be here. You are obviously 
a very busy guy, a <laughs> remarkably busy guy, I, I would say, um, in between your engagements as an author, a speaker, a commentator, a historian. Uh, you've been getting into some some film film work, too. I mean, so yes. you just... I appreciate you carving out the the time to do this. Absolutely. I'm really glad to be here. Well, so every time I see a photo of you, or as I'm seeing you right now, uh, you're wearing a band shirt. And uh, and I, I, I love that. Not that it's a, a, a set uniform, because it changes each day, but I kind of like that as a as a as a presentation thing i've seen the clash bad brains misfits and then oftentimes metal logos uh that i can't read uh such as today's actually <laughs> oh yes the shirt i'm wearing today is uh, for a record label called federal prisoner that was founded by a friend of mine the artist jesse draxler and uh on this label jesse issues the music of a black metal band called Annihilus, which I very much love. Mm. And I do have an Annihilus shirt tucked away in the other room. I probably w wore it one night for one of the sessions of the modern occultism class. But this yeah. is a shirt designed by Jesse and it's the federal prisoner logo and there's a pair of uh, handcuffs here. Oh, that's great, yeah. that's great. Have you, I mean, you worked in in publishing for a long time, so maybe I, I I'm imagining that maybe you had to wear suits or or you know professional clothing of that nature. Uh, but as far as band tees go, is that a thing kind of like going all the way back in your in in your youth? You know, has it always been a rock and roll T-shirt kind of thing for you? Oh, definitely. In fact, it's interesting that you would mention publishing because when I was a kid, you know, 13, 14 years old, I wore a band T-shirt every day of my life. And when I went into publishing, things were a little bit more corporately stringent back when I first got my start. It wasn't as though casual Friday was every day. And of course, you know, it was tucked safely into the future that we would all be working in our underwear from home, you know, 24 <laughs> seven. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, I, I kind of felt the need to um, dress a little bit more in line with, I guess, the Oh, I'm not sure quite how you'd put it. You know, it wasn't quite the world of um, Mad Men, but it was a little bit more buttoned down. Sure. And then, you know, there was a certain point in my career when my work as an editor began to give way more and more to my work as a writer. And I would appear sometimes on television shows or documentaries or what have you, and I was very frequently would wear a blazer, maybe with a button-down shirt, maybe with a T-shirt, but I didn't like it because I felt like that is not actually how I look in day-to-day -day life. And I started just wearing band shirts on camera. And there were some friends who warned me off of it and said, you know, that's very casual way to show up for an interview. You're going to shut down opportunities for yourself. And I said, well, first of all, it's my personal belief that just the opposite is going to occur. And secondly, I want to appear on camera as I do in day-to-day -day life. So I just started dressing that way. And fortunately, my prediction turned out to be correct. And I also found that when I first went to interviews in a band shirt, whatever it was, whether it was the Dead Kennedys or the Clash or the Bad Brains, because I remained very attached to the music that I grew up with, as probably most of us do, um, producers at first would actually ask me to turn the shirt inside out or to put on a black t-shirt. In fact, mm. there's a photograph of me in a magazine called Guideposts where I'm wearing a blue t-shirt, which is turned outside out, inside out. It's a shirt 
from the movie Elvis on Tour, which was made in 1972, which is one of my favorite concert movies. But uh, they forced me to turn it inside out. As time passed, I found that producers stopped doing that. And, you know, I could wear the Black Sabbath T-shirt or the Kennedys T-shirt or whatever it was, and they would stop asking me to turn it inside out. It's not really necessary. You know, Blue Oyster Cult is not going to be bothered if I show up on Ancient Aliens with their T-shirt on. Right, And so right. it just became very natural, and, and I really liked it because I could go from uh, life to camera without feeling like there was any change-up occurring. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You know, I wore, I have a Blue Oyster Cult shirt, uh, and I wore it to the grocery store the other day. And I, you know, as so often happens, you put your shirt on, you don't necessarily think about it throughout the rest of the day, you know, it's just on. And uh, uh, one of the clerks was stalking, you know, and I went down the aisle to get some chips or something, I don't know what. And uh, he looked at me, he said, how are you doing? And I said, I'm, I'm doing great, how are you? And he goes, not fearing the reaper, my friend. And, <laughs> and I was like confused. I was like, uh, what a profound and interesting. And then I was like, oh, shit, the Blue Oyster culture. It's, that it's makes a, sense. It's amazing how music just completely melts barriers and brings people together. Years yeah. ago, there was a friend of mine telling me that he and his wife were crossing the border between... Um, in the Middle East between the state of Jordan and Israel. And there were some problems with their visa or passport, and it's kind of a tough border. And so they got detained by Jordanian border police. And so, you know, they're waiting in this nowhere outpost in the middle of the desert, and they're like, oh man, what's gonna happen next? And the guards uh, had the radio on, and there was a popular Jordanian singer who came on the radio. And my friend just happened to recognize the singer and said, oh, they're listening to so-and-so. And immediately the guards were like, you know so-and-so? And everybody warmed up, and a situation that might have dragged on for who knows how long got resolved in 15 minutes. And it's just incredible yeah. how those barriers will melt. Yeah, I think of music as, well, so you already alluded to it, um, but you, you taught a 12-week a course on, um, it, was, it, was, it was titled Modern Occultism. You kind of did an, a, an overview with, you know, various examinations of, of different topics. A lot was covered, um, much more than I, I would be able to discuss now or even you know, so much of the information I'm still processing. At, at the end of it, we received a download with like everything else and I've been going back over it and it's been, it's been a lot of fun. So, so obviously, uh, there's that, that part of, of, of your life, this, this interest in the esoteric, interest in the occult. I, I have to wonder if that stuff early on was sparked by your musical, uh, was, was, was music one of the doorways for you uh, into these ideas, generally speaking? I think music was a doorway for me that gave me permission, that gave me approbation to be, a, to explore outsider themes, I'll put it that way. You know, wh yeah. when I was growing up, uh, especially when I was uh, uh, in adolescence, the music that was popular was kind of a very late stage rock and roll where everything was sort of a knockoff of what had come earlier. So, you know, The Who and Zeppelin were kind of fading and everything was a very heavily produced variant of what bands like that had introduced. And 
I did not like it. You know, I felt very, very much outside of that world where every lead singer had to look like Roger Daltrey or Robert Plant. And, you know, everything was this kind of angst-free teenage fantasy. And when I first heard the Ramones and the Dead Kennedys and the Sex Pistols and the Clash, suddenly I thought, well, this is rock and roll. This is what Elvis sounded like. This is what Buddy Holly sounded like. This is what rock and roll is supposed to be. And so... I embraced it and I found a part of myself. And so it was one doorway that I was able to open up that allowed me to explore outsider perspectives. I grew up in a a fairly observant Jewish household. I had an Orthodox bar mitzvah at a little synagogue in Queens. But then later, I found that the Jewish liturgy wasn't really speaking to me. It wasn't speaking to my personal search. And I went more in the direction of, of the esoteric and the occult. So these things occurred on parallel tracks, but they were both different cultural doorways that allowed me to explore things as I, as I wanted to. I find, uh, you know, it was really however long ago this book came out, but uh, Peter Bebrigal wrote a great book called Season of the Witch, which I, is... I published and titled that book, I'm proud to there, say, actually. There you go, <laughs> yeah. which is which is so great. So, And, and the subtitle of the book, I think, uh, is uh, How the Occult Saved Rock and Roll. You got it, yep. yep. Pretty good subtitle, I have to say, because I'm, <laughs> I'm in a bookstore and I see this, you know, and I'm like, okay, yeah, I'm I'm, I'm on board. I feel I feel like I can... I can you know, recognize what maybe this book is attempting to do. Yeah. Um, in reading it and then subsequent conversations with Peter and, um, uh, you know, that book for me was a real, uh, uh, a real turning point in that it helped to align a lot of my interests along a path that I could sort of wrap my head around in, yeah. in a weird way, you know, having the, the music side um, tie into, the, you know, these expressions uh, it just it it presented a very compelling package, you know. Long story short, yeah. And yeah. I and I found myself, you know, having uh, the 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 faith of my youth being a more uh, a more straightforward Christian faith, you know, mm-hmm. raised in raised in a a, a a first Christian church, sort of a, um, technically maybe non denominational, but not in the sense that that you know term gets thrown out. Anyway. I, I had from my very earliest days a real sense that music and spiritual expression were were tied together somehow, um, mm-hmm. at least or at least could be, you know. And uh, and Peter's book, it was just it was just such a beautiful expression of that. And uh, of course, it's funny that you had something to do with it, but um, so it goes sometimes. Um, <laughs> but I think so much about the mystery attached to to the music you know of that time and and how we live in an era in which much of the the mystery and the allure of not knowing who these people were not necessarily even knowing what your favorite rock star looked like you know so much of that is is gone um and it's been replaced with lots of other interesting things you know direct access and a real sense of who these people are and that Mm -hmm. can be a beautiful thing too but but i wonder if for you you know did punk as you were discovering it did it have some of that some of that sense of mystery like the you know who are who are these people what is the the what is the deal with this outsider ethos um was the mystery part of what drew you to it or or what drew you to it maybe is a better question oh yeah i mean well there's a lot to unpack there first you know just to say a quick word about season of the witch you know, Peter's genius in that book is is 
in that he was able to understand some of the root matter, you know, in ways that other literary journalists would not. You know, anybody could sort of trace the connections between Aleister Crowley and Jimmy Page or Kabbalah and David Bowie or, you know, you, you name it, you know, Transcendental Meditation and George Harrison or what have you. Anybody could do that. But, yeah. you know, what Peter did is he understood that the roots of rock and roll were not just strictly gospel and rhythm and blues, but there was an influence of hoodoo there, the African-American magical tradition, which is something I write about a lot in Occult America, spoke about during the modern occultism course. And, you know, so when early rock and rollers would talk about the influence of gospel and rhythm and blues, in the background of that, the subtext of that was also the spiritual tradition of the African-American occult experience of hoodoo, which I think infused a great deal of the mystery and the mysticism and the the, the the kind of shadow qualities that we hear in early rock and roll, that haunting sound that you hear, you know, yeah. on a song like uh, Mystery Train, you know, or, or something, you know, of that ilk, you know, you're not just hearing like straight rockabilly that's infused with gospel and rhythm and blues, you're hearing an undercurrent of something from midnight, you know, and that's the, yeah. you know, obviously there's the sexuality as well, but, you know, you're, you're hearing that encounter with hoodoo, with the unseen world in the earliest roots of rock. And, you know, Peter, Peter got at that, which I really, which I really appreciated. And for me, um, as far as the, the mystery and the sense of discovery and the uh, feeling of the unknown, I experienced all of that in connection with punk, especially since there was no way early on to, to see pictures or videos of your favorite artists. You know, the rock video didn't really exist yet as a mass media. Uh, sometimes bands would make promotional videos, but, you know, we didn't have the music video as a basic part of media. Not not quite yet. It was just coming in. Not quite yet. And I think there was one night where I was uh, I was in my bedroom up late, um, probably smoking pot. And I heard on the radio, I don't even know what station it would have been. Maybe it was a college station the Dead Kennedys uh, doing Holiday in Cambodia. And I can't tell you the electricity that passed through me. You know, I didn't know what these guys looked like. I had never so much seen a picture of the band or of uh, Jello Biafra, the lead singer. And the voice was so raw and honest and absent of any affect. And it sounded unlike anything else I had ever heard before, where there was not a trace of... Of, of effort to imitate or impersonate uh, white rock and roll uh, singers who, who, who had come before him, who themselves were sort of impersonating the R&B singers who they idolized and clipped and pasted from. And yeah. I felt like I was hearing a voice that I had never, never heard before. And I'm listening to this on uh, what must have been a transistor radio with no imagery whatsoever. And I'm hearing not only what sounded to me like absolute truth, but like a total break with the immediate past. 
And I was hooked. I was hooked. And it changed everything for me. It changed the clothes I started wearing. It, you know, I started cutting the sleeves off my t-shirts. You know, I started proudly having tears in my jeans rather than being ashamed of it. I, you know, I, I, I just, it, I, I cut my hair. You know, I had had long hair and I was into like, you know, oh, look at me. I'm Keith Partridge. And suddenly I didn't want to be Keith Partridge anymore. I wanted to be yeah. Sid, you know. And so it all changed. It all changed. It was like a, a change that just penetrated everything. Yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. So, so you have, uh, I know, uh, a, a bad brains tattoo or a tattoo that evokes <laughs> evokes bad brains, right? Right. Yeah. PMA, positive PMA, mental attitude. Yeah. With the with the bolt, you know, as mm-hmm. seen on 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 the the famous album cover. Uh, obviously, uh, bad brains and their ev- their evocation of of PMA and their influence of of noted, you know, new thought th- uh, thinker Napoleon Hill. You know, yes. All of this dovetails. Did did you discover Bad Brains first? Uh, I, I have to imagine that it was similar. How, how did how exactly did you first hear Bad Brains? I did discover Bad Brains first. Um, wow, I think I I don't remember how it first came to me, but the album Remain in Light came into my hands. So I discovered Bad Brains first, and it was so exciting, and it remains so uh, to this day that there was a band that reflected everything that was that was real and that was true and everything that that kind of came from the experience of street life but arrived at a place where a song like attitude could extol pma or positive mental attitude and it just gave me a whole different way of entering and relating to the self-help field the motivational field and it's so important that None of these ideas, um, whether they be punk or whether they be therapeutic, get put into little boxes because people bring their own lives to these ideas and the ideas themselves get remade in this kind of symbiosis at the hands of the listener or the reader. You know, just last night I was reading uh, the book, uh, The Culture of Narcissism by the great, great social critic and historian Christopher Lash. And I love Christopher Lash. and. I believe in aspects of his critique, but inevitably, of course, he came around as all uh, fairly contemporary social critics do to pointing out what he perceived as the shallowness, the superficiality, the cynicism of writers like Napoleon Hill, who can encourage people to have a white hot desire for wealth, as if that represents everything that is intellectually, morally, ethically degraded about our culture, and you think to yourself, that's what punk should be attacking. But bad brains turn it completely around and say, not only are we not attacking that, we're extolling that, we're appropriating that to concretize our own ideas, our own wishes, our own hunger for rebellion and revolution. And that's how I approach Napoleon Hill myself, not saying, oh, I want this kind of car or I want the corner office. Not that I'm knocking that or down on that, but I had my own wishes, my own needs. And I feel sometimes like the fields of journalism, academia, social criticism that immediately look to piss on motivational philosophy, self-help philosophy, because it seems so superficial to them, it seems so retrograde to them. Very often, the people who are writing those arguments, and I'm not saying this in some sort of a, a, a manipulative way, but it's just been my personal observation after many years of doing this, both as a writer and a publisher, and circulating through many different areas of 
media, journalism, academia, very often those arguments are coming from people who are entirely unacquainted with need. They are entirely unacquainted with need, other than as something they've read about, heard about, might empathize with, but they don't understand when you have a hunger burning within you to accomplish something and you don't come from a position where there's any certitude whatsoever that you're going to be able to accomplish that, reaching out for and grabbing hold of a book by Napoleon Hill can be a real act of self-assertion, self-determination in the same way that the bad brains interpreted it. And it helped me to interpret it that way. And I felt my own private sense of need that was very deep. And when I was able to approach those books, I was able to approach them in a way that a group like Bad Brains opened up for me because I realized that this is about concretizing ideas. You know, it's not about some retrograde form of conventional thinking or conformity. And we need to recapture that and realize that in the same way that the listener remakes his music by the symbiotic experience, so does the reader remake his or her experience in that same way. There's a symbiosis that goes on with the material. Yeah, and I think part of what makes Bad Brain such an interesting um, example to speak about here is because in the way that, yeah, as exactly as you've mentioned, you know, there can be a sort of um, dismissal of some of these things or, or the sense that, or people will have the sense that, yeah, this is uh, superficial or surface mm -hmm. level or that it's like, you know, PMA equals nothing more than wishful, reductive, you know, uh, exclusionary thinking that doesn't take into account the the multitude of problems. What I kind of like about Bad Brains is, one, through the sheer force of their musical will, it you know, there is no, you can't listen to a Bad Brains song and pick up on rosy uh, escapism, you right. know what I mean? That's, right. not, that's not what listening no to Bad Brains... Yeah. <laughs> That's not what listening to Bad Brains is like. Listening mm -hmm. to Bad Brains is like sticking your finger in a wall socket and just getting like electrocuted with the sense <clears throat> of, of possibility. And, and then when you then extrapolate that out, you begin to explore the, uh, the other influences because uh, you know uh, Napoleon Hill was not their only spiritual influence, but the influence of Rastafarianism yes. and uh, obviously the straight edge culture. and. Yes. and and of course, there are also uh, bad brains uh, lyrics that I find objectionable for various reasons. You mm -hmm. know, specifically some of the more homophobic stuff, which they have disavowed. Um, right. You know, which is just important to note. But which is to say that, like, uh, every band, in a weird way, I almost think of every band as a mini culture or a mini religion. I know that. Beautifully. I mean, no, no, you're so right. And that's such a wonderful, wonderful insight. And in fact, the best example that I can find of that, although I think what you've just said is universal, is Insane Clown Posse. You know, what is Insane Clown Posse but its own mini culture and religion? And it has a lot in common with how primeval religions come together. And um, I, yeah. I, I mean, you know, not only is there kind of a philosophy that takes shape over the over the span of of ICP's records, but several years ago uh, they discovered the book and movie The Secret, and they began to extol the book and the movie The Secret. I don't know if they talk about that right now, but there was a period of a couple of years where they talked about it, and. This relates a little bit to what we were talking about before. You know, everybody within the spiritual culture and the general culture is, of course, supposed to go through this, this kind of almost um, 
de rigueur, you know, pissing on the secret as a manner of showing their own seriousness. You know, everybody I know within the spiritual culture at some point or another has to pull me aside and tell me, well, I'm not into that crap, the secret. You know, somebody must have liked it. I mean, you know, the book sold something like <laughs> 20 million copies. You know, the movie was downloaded, you know, how many hundreds of millions of times. Somebody liked it, you know. And, and sure. I, I went back and I, I decided to rewatch The Secret, uh, which is now, wow, it came out in 2006. So, I mean, really, we're getting past 15 years here, and I think it's time for people to stop engaging in this kind of rote pissing on the secret as though to demonstrate <laughs> their own spiritual seriousness. And so I rewatched the thing with one of my kids, and in a lot of respects, to be perfectly frank, I like the values of the movie. I've criticized Rhonda Byrne. I've criticized her in my book, One Simple Idea. I have sharp and strong differences with her, and, and I'm not shy about airing those. But at the same time, things that people say about the movie or the book, like, oh, the end of all spiritual experiences manifesting a Mercedes-Benz. There's not even a Mercedes-Benz in the movie. You know, it's kind of like right. flag burning. You know, did anyone back in the 60s ever <laughs> actually burn the American flag? I'm not sure that ever even happened. But, you know, we all have these kind of collective fantasies that we consensually agree upon. The secret... Sure in some respects is one of them. So allowing for the fact that I have serious differences with Rhonda and allowing for the fact that I've written about those serious differences, I I feel that when Insane Colin Percy began to talk about the secret and when they said, you know, to the juggalos, you know, you can have anything you want, a lot of people would line up to roll their eyes at that, to shake their heads at that, to say, you know, oh, that's bullshit. But if you look at where the message is coming from and to whom the message is being directed, that's a message that is, and I'll say it plainly, it's potentially life-saving to the right person at the right time. You know, there may be someone who's reaching for that vape stick, who's reaching for that beer, who's reaching for that needle, and they hear that, you know, coming from their heroes at a certain time and place. And, you know, there's a lot of people listening who know the experience of going through a kind of conversion episode, however you want to put it, of, you know, being at that darkest place in life and suddenly feeling like, wait a minute, rather than jumping out that window, I can open that window and there's some other yeah. possibility there. And we can never select where those things are going to come from. And so that's why, like, when you say that, that a band can be like a religion in and of itself, not only do I believe that that's true, but in the case of Insane Clown Posse, it's perhaps even more explicit than you might see in certain other cases. And I would just ask people to realize that you've probably had moments in your life where you've undergone something that could be akin to a conversion experience, a phrase that William James used. And that can objectively reorient everything that you're going through. Call it an epiphany, call it whatever you want. People go through things and they suddenly view themselves and life in a different way. And a lot of people feel that they've been saved that way from going down a path that would have leaded them, led them to a very retrograde place. I could imagine ICP fans feeling that when they hear their heroes talking about a book like The Secret, it gives people a sense of options, possibilities, different ways of using their minds. So I know I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here, but I, I really just want to affirm what you're saying, because not only do I believe that's true, but with, with Insane Clown Posse, uh, one can see it almost as explicitly true. Yeah, I mean, that's a great, that's, I would go, 
This is definitely the first time that Insane Clown Posse has been discussed on the Transmissions <laughs> podcast. It's the first time they've made an appearance. <laughs> first of many. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, I'm going to ask Violent J and Shaggy Too Dope to come on next yeah. uh, next episode, and we can talk more about this. Um, no, but you're, you're 100% right. I think that there's something... You know, one of the sort of flagship bands of our project at Aquarium Drunkard is, is The Grateful Dead, a band that um, similarly, I think, exists as much more than simply a rock band that people listen to. It is a way of life. Mm -hmm. Now, within the dead community, you know, uh, there's vast, vast differences from deadhead to deadhead. I mean, I think we know this, noting that uh, there are notable conservative deadhead fans, you know? Um, we don't even need to get into to all of them, you know, or, or couldn't probably. But... There's that, and then, but then you've got a deadhead who's more of a whole earth catalog kind of deadhead, or you've got a, a deadhead who's actually just really into sci-fi and fantasy, you know, because of the, the Robert Hunter as almost a mythic, poetic, you know, fantasy kind of writer. Anyway, so there's all of, there's room for all of this, but nonetheless, a giant gathering, a giant uh, collection of, of various ideas. And then you can expand that to the musical side in that they're incorporating elements of jazz, elements of, you know, uh, improv music. Oh, obviously improv music, but experimental music, avant-garde, all of this stuff. So you almost see it, I think, at least, you almost see these, like, the way that things dovetail. And for me, musical expression, maybe just artistic expression, is the primary, the primary way that I engage with occult ideas or spiritual ideas or, you know, because to me... You, you almost see it's the way like Alan Moore will talk about how there is for him functionally no difference between magic and art. Mm -hmm. uh, and and, and I, I identify quite a lot with that idea because even though, you know, that's not the end of the conversation for me necessarily, um, I think you see in, and this is something I tried to do in the in the thought forms piece that I interviewed you for with Aquarium Drunkard, and I'm not sure how successful I was at it, and that's okay um, because it's all we're always reaching, you know. But I wanted to talk about the idea that that in this book, you know, the the authors are talking about the shape of thoughts, the the color of thoughts, the form of thoughts. Music to me, it it is it's an expression of that. To some degree, too, right? It exists in the the musicians, maybe not in their head, you know, but uh, it exists somewhere, and then they pull it and they shape it into being, and it becomes a thing, and they they uh, combine it with other forms, and and yeah, all the things that happen with religion happen with a song, you know. Yes, um, yes, and I would say in the life of the individual too, you know, the individual absolutely. looks at him or herself and says, you know, who do I want to be? What am I about? And I think That's when right. people are suffering from depression or ennui or anxiety or addiction, very often whatever diagnostic code is slapped on their position, um, very very often what you'll find is a crisis of self-expression. They feel like they can't be who they want to be. And there may be other things going on as well. I mean, when people are struggling from an addiction or a perpetual problem, there's probably a complexity of factors that are feeding into that. I mean, we're sort of attenuated in our society to always look for that one magic bullet of solution. And I think that that can be a, a very tough mistake because 
problems usually have a complexity of causes, and the solution is 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 probably going to be a complex of of factors as well. But it seems to me that one factor that gets overlooked, and I feel very strongly about this, and I write about this in some of my books, I believe that a lot of what we classify uh, as neurosis is a frustration of personal power, a frustration specifically of self-expression, of the individual wanting to express self. And we're going through a period of time right now in the 21st century where we feel a terrific tension, you know, in that regard. I mean, our our definition of gender is expanding so that people are capable of expressing themselves more and more in that way. And the options that are available to people in lifestyle and technology and appearance are dramatically changing. And of course, there's going to be a tension between self-determination and consumerism. And I want to be really delicate and careful about that because, look, we live in a consumerist society. That's not going to change anytime soon, although, of course, anything could change dramatically and unexpectedly. If the pandemic hasn't taught us that, then 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 I'm probably unteachable. But yeah. my expectation is that we will remain for the foreseeable future in a consumer society, which means that there are certain things that are going to get packaged and sold back to us. But allowing for that fact, I don't want the individual to feel embarrassed by or intimidated by availing him or herself of things that could bring about the experience of self-expression or could serve as some sort of an accelerant to self-expression. Those things are going to get commercialized. I mean, that's just the way it is. It's going to happen. I'm wearing, you know, different things that I bought that were assembled in all kinds of different places that I bought online. And I don't know anything about the lives of people who put these things together, you know, and, and, and we're all going to be buying and selling things for a long time to come. And I just, I, I, I believe that the process that you're talking about, which you applied to thought forms, which you applied to music also applies to the individual's wish to be self-expressive. And that really, to me, is the deepest wish that I have for myself and for other people to find that that freedom of self-expression, not to get overly bound up in questions of whether it's being sold back to me as a consumable item, because to some degree that is going to happen no matter yeah. what. But yeah. I would say don't get overly hung up on that. And don't be, I, I, my message to social critics and journalists as well is don't be so sure. Don't be so sure that the thing that you see or critique as being superficial or uh, a reflection of some social malady or a reflection of consumerism gone mad will not right. be a, a huge help as well in somebody's life because we're all part of this cycle. And that's that's there you know, as, 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 part of the, as, part, as part of the gambit no matter what we do. Certainly. Yeah. And something that I really appreciate about your work, Mitch, in, and I, Occult America was the first the first book of yours that I read. Uh, a great book. Uh, Thank a you. real real classic in, in the genre, in my opinion. Um, but what I what I appreciated very much was that I don't I tend. I tend to not shy away uh, or I, I, I let me rephrase that. I I. I understand and and sympathize with and respect the sort of skepticism that can be applied to the notion that these like these spiritual concepts ultimately what they're going to help you do is is buy a new car or or Mm -hmm. buy whatever you know now look you 
there are a lot of people who need a car, you know, yes. who need a car to do to do things. <laughs> right. Uh, I res- I respect that too, you know. But the flattening of of some of these spiritual concepts uh, into a purely consumerist model or whatever, you know, that's a danger, and and we should probably, you know, f- focus on that and make sure that we keep examining it. But one of the things I liked about your course about occult America was the way in which you you noted that. Uh, radical figures, figures who were who were pushing for uh, somebody like the, the public universal friend was for me like one of these like shiny examples of you know reading what uh, when did when did you write a cold America? was it 2015? Oh no! It... Uh, believe it or not, it came out in 2009. <laughs> was, okay, okay, yeah. so it took it took me a minute to get it, but I read it right around the time of you know uh, the 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 2016 election or whatever and all mm-hmm. that stuff. Uh, but like reading about the public universal friend, who for listeners was a uh, a, sh- a a shaker, uh, right? Right? Um, and oh, sorry, a Quaker. A Quaker. First. A Quaker. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> a, Quaker, a Quaker who who uh, after suffering uh, uh, a malady, a, a, a terrible fever, yeah. emerged emerged as the public universal friend, a sort of gender uh, non gendered uh, yes. in- entity. And to me, it was this feeling of just like. Wow, uh, there is nothing new under the sun, but I mean that in a good way, in a positive yeah. way of yeah. like recognizing. Well, people have always been. There's always been these radical figures, many of whom you cite. Uh, you know, you've you've spoken greatly about Gandhi's, you know, uh, attraction to uh, theosophical ideas, and yeah. you know, and the sympathy he found with them. You think of all of the so many of the 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 reform reformer movements have been driven by these like radical spiritualists people who were who were interested in shaking things up so i think it's like we just as much as we want to say well like let's not uh let's not ignore the 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 path that leads to just sort of like thoughtless consumerism via these these modes of thought let's also remember that it can lead very different directions the individual very much has a a say in in who's you know where the car that I have already brought up is going. You know what I mean? Yes. It's funny. I, I, you find the presence of occultism, esotericism, transcendental religion at the heart of a lot of different radical social movements. You can also find some of those same things at the heart of authoritarian or anti-democratic movements. And that's a, that's, right. that's a fact, if not a paradox, that the seeker has to learn to acknowledge and live with or if he or she really wants to be a person on the path with eyes wide open. Now, a lot of people have pointed out, quite rightly, uh, that our wonderful previous president, Trump, uh, was a, 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 a kind of a, a, a student of sorts of positive mind metaphysics. Trump and his family attended a Marble Collegiate Church on Fifth Avenue, which was presided over by the Reverend Norman Vincent Peale, author of the 1952 bestseller, Power of Positive Thinking. And in fact, long before Trump uh, expressed political ambitions, I wrote about Trump and his attraction to Norman Vincent Peale, which was a mutual attraction in my book, uh, One Simple Idea, which is a history of the positive mind movement that came out in January of 2014. And uh, Peale had already died at that time, but one of his co-pastors uh, told me the story of how attracted Peale was to this figure of Trump. And and and, and it was obviously mutual. And uh, Power of Positive Thinking is the only book that Trump has ever talked about reading in a sincere way. It may be the only book that he's read. And, um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and so 
you know, I've had a lot of people call me, journalists, social critics, and you know, just colleagues, and say, look, you know, don't you see something incredibly ominous in Trump's reality distortion, in his ability to deny the validity of the last presidential election, for example, and yeah. his imbibing uh, and speaking in a very animated way about a book like Power of Positive Thinking, which basically tells you, hey, you can remake your world and believe and be anything you want. And my right. response to that is, yes, I am very, very concerned about it. And shame on me if I'm not. Shame on yeah. me if I revert to easy polemical answers of like, oh, yeah, well, what about Marcus Garvey? Well, what about the universal friend? Well, what of about course. Wallace D. Waddles, a socialist who wrote Science of Getting Rich? Sure, I can engage in that stuff all day long and 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 uh, absolve myself of any responsibility for the fact that Trump and I, you know, have a, at least one book in common on our shelves, you know, right. and, 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 <laughs> and it's more than just that. I mean, even to put it that way is being somewhat glib. I mean, I've dedicated myself to this question of mind I just spoke with you in, in, a, in a very ingenuous way about bad brains and insane clown posse and affiliated myself with, with some of their points of view, and I stand by that. But if I'm going to do that, then it also makes me answerable to some extent for the fact that Trump, who I view as a horribly retrograde and authoritarian figure who might be roaring back into our political lives very, very soon, and in a way yeah. he never left, um, that he imbibes this material too. And it's not sufficient for me to say, well, this or that or the other person who I like and admire and, and whose values I believe in also did. The truth is, you know, transcendental religion, especially of the sort that says that there's a very thin line of separation between mental and spiritual experience and that thoughts have some causative quality to greater or lesser extent, whether you interpret that psychologically or metaphysically or some mixture of the two, that's really the American philosophy. You know, that's run through our culture for all its sins and omissions and problems. That's run through our culture from very, very early on. And that's going to continue to, I mean, at least by lights of what's happening today, it's everywhere. It's everywhere. And right. it's going to get used and made and formulated by the individual according to his or her values. My argument with the critics is I don't think that it's a conveyance device of values. Their argument would be that the, the, the mind causation thesis inevitably and invariably gives rise to a figure like Donald Trump. That I dispute because there are so many exceptions that the rule is undefinable. There are just too many exceptions to that. I don't think sure. it's, it's a conveyance of values specifically, but it does shape and give expression to values so that if you're HR, the lead singer of Bad Brains, and your wish is to rise up from desperate circumstances where you're doing too many drugs and you're surrounded by violence, it serves to give expression to those values. If you're Trump and you're a, a, a profoundly narcissistic figure who depends upon the adulation of other people at any cost, it right. gives shape to those values. So it's very, very powerful and it runs universally throughout our culture. I don't think it conveys values exactly, but but it 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 does it does it does give shape to them, it does give form to them, it does concretize them. That's right. Yeah, yeah. I think there's what the there's a Vonnegut quote where he says we uh, we are who we pretend to be, so we must be careful about who we pretend to be. Oh, you know? Goethe could have said that. You know, it's absolutely yeah. beautiful. You know, Goethe yeah. said something to the effect of, and, and I'm I'm distantly paraphrasing, but 
what you wish for when you're very young will come upon you in waves when you're old, so be careful. And people immediately want to argue with that statement, and I understand why, but I ask them, rather than argue with it, just take a pause, think back to some of your earliest, earliest fantasies and self-imaging when you were three years old, four years old, you know, just at that age where we retain long-term memories, and see if you don't detect a congruity. You know, it can be a very interesting exercise. Oh yeah, man. When I, 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 I that was probably the age when I decided I wanted to grow up to be surrounded by music and comic books, and look, here we are. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm looking at your room right now behind you. I can, I can assure your listeners, you are surrounded by music and comic books and a stepladder because you have a lot of them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, no, absolutely, and and you know that is, <clears throat> but that is, um, that that's be- that's a beautiful, um, it's a, that's a beautiful point, and it's I think it's worth. We're thinking about I, I one of the we've alluded a couple times already to the occult uh, cl- course that you taught that I that I really enjoyed and I learned so much. You know, if I had to pick my favorite episode or favorite episode, my favorite installment uh, of of the course, I really liked your um, examination of the the occult revival, which sort of picked up um, in the uh, the nineteen let's say nineteen fifties and sixties sort of, and and continues more or less. Uh, to, to the to today you know kind of takes us that's a, that's kind of a, a not a not necessarily a demarcation point but a, a helpful starting point in thinking about this um i've spoken with eric davis the author mm-hmm. of high weirdness uh, another great great book we're dropping a lot of book recommendations in this episode so <laughs> we'll try to assemble a list or something so that uh, so that listeners can check it out but um eric and i spoke about um his book, High Weirdness, was mostly focused on the 1970s, although yeah. it picks up and starts in the 60s. And, and he said something along the lines of like, yeah, the long 60s is sort of the, the way I think of this. It's not really a decade. It's, it's more a general time, you know, that, that we can look at the emergence of certain things. And, and you sort of, I, I felt, affirmed that in, in, in this course where... But what you started talking about was, in addition to the way uh, mass media and pop culture have allowed esoteric ideas to move from out of the shadows into more uh, recognizable mainstream forms and, and, and outlets, you started off by talking about Kenneth Arnold and, and UFOs. And, mm. and I wondered if... Uh, if you'd mind uh, sharing with me when that became a subject that you uh, got interested in, was that also as a as a as a pretty young person that you yeah. first got interested in UFOs? I would say it was as, as a pretty young person. I very distinctly remember my sister coming, my big sister coming home from school with books from the Arrow Book Club about Bigfoot and flying saucers and ESP and the paperbacks of Carlos Castaneda, and you know, yeah. I'm sitting there listening to Beatles records backwards, you know, reading about Bigfoot, and that's what did it, you know, so. Did you, did did you ever hear any uh, any messages hidden backwards in the grooves or Oh oh without question without question yeah. when I was a kid um a friend of mine had a reel to reel tape recorder and he would play the messages backwards and they were absolutely there you know turn me yeah. on dead man and we're listening to this and you know debating whether Paul McCartney is dead and I think I began a cult America with a anecdote where I overheard my big sister on the phone wondering whether Ringo Starr had shaved his head in solidarity with Charles Manson. And, you know, this was the conversation (laughs) that went on. And um, I think 
you know, Kenneth Arnold was an interesting figure because he begs the question of how an idea goes viral. Arnold yeah. was a commercial pilot in Washington State who, in the year 1947, made the first sighting, popular sighting, of what eventually came to be called flying saucers. Arnold didn't specifically use that term, but he talked around the term. You know, he described it, a spherical disk, a fast-moving disk in the sky. You know, it sort of looked like a plate. And, you know, eventually the press settled on the term flying saucer. So, you know, that really began in our culture in many respects with the Kenneth Kenneth Arnold sighting, and then it was a short leap to Roswell and a short leap to flying saucer sightings over DC and Los Angeles and New York City, and then boom, we are off and running. And 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 welcome to post-war culture. And yeah. it's so fascinating how one sighting, you know, it becomes the the the, the seedling of a, a, a movement, a, an outlook, a cultural turning of a page that has so come to define our own era. And of course, the whole UFO thesis is entering a whole new phase at this point in time. And it's different from when I was a kid, because when I was a kid, if you talked about flying saucers, you know, you'd get sent to the principal's office or something and, you know, That's get right. given a special test or what have you. And now, of course, I don't think there's any serious person who denies the validity of the UFO thesis. We don't know what it is, but it's not swamp gas or weather balloons or little green men. You know, we could say, okay, there is right. a big, big question there. What is it? Well, we don't know, but it's a very, very epic question. It may be one of the questions that defines our era. And so Kenneth Arnold was just fascinating to me because he really inaugurated that whole post-war fascination with the, the soon-to-be household term of UFOs or flying saucers. It actually began at the very end of World War II when Allied fighter pilots described these spherical balls trailing their planes, which they referred to as Foo Fighters. And we still don't know what these things were. You know, some, some fighter pilots speculated that it was this last-ditch Axis weapon, but uh, there were articles in Time Magazine and other places about these so-called Foo Fighters. Then a couple of years later, Kenneth Arnold starts talking about flying discs and, and post-war culture takes shape. Yeah. Yeah. And it's interesting, too. You, you don't, uh, you know, the, the, the UFO idea, the, the concept, you know, you, you are careful to, to state that that's not explicitly an occult, you know, topic necessarily, right. or, or rather that it, it, it might not be. Given that we know so little about any of it, it's hard to say, <laughs> right. you know, what topic. There is no, uh, this is exactly where it belongs because we don't know what it is. But, but I, I do find a lot of interest in, you know, uh, with our last ten minutes, I'm. I, I think I might. I, I. I'm worried that I'm going to veer into some just like nonsense, but that's okay. Let's um, go down the <laughs> rabbit hole. Yeah, let's do it. I. I think of the emergence of this idea of like UFOs. You know, um. Uh, 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 that that if these are something truly from another world or another continuum or dimension or or any of the other fantastical possibilities, you know. Even if they are just advanced craft from another planet, you know, that's it's a huge sort of realization. Yes, yes. So, yeah, even if they're only right. spaceships from another right. planet right. populated by intelligent beings, yeah. Right. <laughs> but at the same time, I also think a lot about, I, I, uh, I kind of feel like uh, Twin Peaks, The Return, David Lynch's... Mm -hmm. uh, Third season, uh, David Lynch and Mark Frost's third season of, of, of that that program, 
there's an episode in it uh, uh, in which uh, at the White Sands testing ground in, in New Mexico, they detonate the, the A-bomb, you know, that will soon be used against Japan. Uh, and, and in Lynch's fantastical vision, uh, we, we go into the explosion and we begin to experience the explosion on a sort of subatomic level. And then we're transported back to this 1950s scene uh, where we meet some future Twin Peaks characters and there's basically the sort of uh, text is that the bomb has ripped a hole in reality, you know? And yes. I think And I think about that post-war sense of we have now seen as a race the immense destructive capacity of our of our people of our kind you know uh and i just feel like you combine that with things like ufos with this onset of a new sort of occult revival that you that you sort of outline and i just wonder what is what all is what all is happening you know it feels like some sort of uh uh, epochal shift, you know, yeah, and and, yeah. and I wonder if it, I wonder if it feels that that way to you, or, or, you know, and and do you feel like we're do you feel like we're in that right now? Do you feel like we're uh, moving towards the conclusion of that and the start of something new? How does it feel to you at this point as a somebody who's paid attention to all this stuff? I would say that for the first time in my career, I have started to speak in those terms of an epochal shift. And I do think a kind of a shift is going on. And I generally have resisted that kind of language partly because every generation feels that it's on some sort of a precipice. I don't think there's ever been a, a generation, you know, l literally, you know, going back to the, the, the turn of the millennium prior to this one that hasn't felt that it's been on some sort of a precipice. So that's a, a very common generational outlook and the occult has been an evergreen and we've had suggestions of, of the numinous and apocalyptic movements and m movements that have, 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 led people to feel that there was a lowering of the veil between ourselves and some other reality that have played out in 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 western life before and and so i've been very very hesitant to talk in terms of these epochal shifts or paradigm shifts or occult revivals you know since the late 60s or what have you um but finally for the first time i do view things that way and a lot of it has to do i think with these high definition Navy cockpit videos of UFOs and other UFO media that was leaked earlier and that has since been affirmed as, as having come from DOD files and the recent nine-page Pentagon report that identifies some 140-plus UFO sightings that uh, reflect some technology that's not understood. Regardless of what one makes of the background of any of that stuff, it 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 reflects above all else the mainstreaming of the UFO question, which, as you pointed out, is not directly related to the occult, but it does intersect in that it opens people up to questions of the numinous, you know, and it pokes a very big hole in the straight story that we grew up with, that if you can't smell, taste, touch, feel, or throw it, you know, it's not real. And the fact is, you know, we're facing this phenomena. We don't know 
what it is. It seems the only unconvincing argument is that it's nothing. It's just a mistake. It's just an illusion. It's just light reflecting off the Gulf of Mexico or whatever. I mean, the only argument that seems unpersuasive is the one that insists to us that, you know, it's nothing but a, a light bulb being loose in effect and flickering and we think it's something else. You know, I think that that thesis has had its day and that that is now past. So it raises the question of, of what it is. We have no idea. Is it extraterrestrial in origin? Is it interdimensional in origin? Is it something else entirely? You know, the, the, I think it, the point has been made since the late 1960s that if you're using the model of Occam's razor, which dictates that the simplest answer that covers the most bases is likely to be correct, then some people have pointed out that in fact, it's, it's easier. It's easier to explain the UFO phenomenon in terms of interdimensionality based on current models of, of quantum physics, including string theory, than it is to explain how a physical craft could accomplish interstellar travel, which is really, really hard to explain. We don't have as, 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 as advanced a set of models for that as we do at the current time, have theoretical models for string theory and, 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 and other quantum possibilities, which help explain some of the surreal data that comes out of quantum physics experiments, that comes out of some of the unresolved data from, from Newtonian physics, such as why is there a mirror effect between objects, both particle and macro at very large distances. So string theory, in some of its iterations, covers some of those grounds, and it could cover, it could cover the UFO thesis in a way that's simpler than the interstellar travel model, which is really hard. So if we're going to talk in terms of possibilities, those are two, and it opens us to questions of the numinous. It opens us to uh, the possibility of a world that's greater than the one covered by our ordinary sensory data. And that's extraordinarily exciting. And that's where you start to see intersections with the occult and the esoteric. And I think we are turning some sort of a page. What, Where it goes and what comes next, I have no idea. But usually things happen in a kind of context. So as there's renewed interest in UFOs for very good reason, there's probably going to be renewed interest in, renewed funding of academic ESP experiments, which is something that's very important to me. People are interested increasingly in the therapeutic uses of psychedelics, not only in terms of microdosing, but in terms of, you know, entheogenic substances helping yeah. with PTSD and all kinds of things. So it starts to open up, you know, dimensions of the psyche, dimensions that are possibly uh, related to extra physicality or, or experiences that go beyond those we're able to track through ordinary sensory data. And it, it opens us up to new potentials in ways that, that, that we can't yet understand or, or do more than speculate about, but I think clearly a page is turning. Yeah. Well, Mitch, it has been, it's been such a, I knew, I knew the hour was going to fly by. I didn't expect it to fly by the way it did. Um, we didn't even get to discuss musical telepathy, which we'll we'll get into. It's we'll, it's we'll have to do some sort. We'll have to do some sort of follow up because you know the Grateful Dead did do extensive uh, LSD yes. musical telepathy. They With attempted, Stanley Krippner, that's right. Exa exactly. So that so yeah. they 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 were uh, they were pioneers. I had uh, one of my favorite guitarists, the jazz guitarist Bill Frizzell, has been on the show, and. Uh, you know, as somebody who's played with everybody from John Zorn in in you know Naked City. Oh wait, Naked City, Naked Lunch. Yeah. Anyway, uh, I asked him point blank. I was like, "Do you believe in kind of musical telepathy?" And he was like, "Yeah." 
like right away said it right away. Amazing. and i don't and i don't know that he would share any of the other interests that we've covered today but i do i do wonder what's going on there there's got to be you know there's there's something happening uh yeah but yeah any- <laughs> Well, we'll anyway. should, we should do an epic show with him and me and Insane Clown Posse and Musical Telepathy, and we'll do like let's, a festival. Let's get him in. We'll, so. we'll, we'll, get, we'll get HR in here. It'll be a right. salon type thing. That'd uh, be amazing. <laughs> well, well uh, Mitch, thank you so much. Before Pleasure. we go, I did, I did want to throw one more thing out, if you don't mind. Uh, uh, in Last year, Death Valley Girls uh, included a tribute to, to your, your work on, uh, on their album, Under the Spell of Joy, uh, 10 Day Miracle Challenge, a song on that record. Uh, to close, I wondered uh, if you just, how, how did it feel uh, hearing that for the first time? Oh, I was so thrilled. I was so excited. You know, the 10 Day Miracle Challenge is an exercise that came to me one day in Boulder, Colorado, where I woke up depressed and, and hung over, and I felt very boxed in by something that was weighing on me. And I got an email from some anonymous person person telling me that she was suffering and did I have any insight and it just came to me and I said well look you know here's an exercise that we can do together and it just came to me at that time and I'm just thrilled that that it's touched people's lives in the, in that way you know it came to me at a moment of crisis I shared it with another person and 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 suddenly you know people started coming to me as it spread you know saying hey this has made a difference in my life so it was just incredibly affirming and and it means the world to me that 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 those guys would would bring their their musical genius to it yeah well i really enjoyed listening to it and i and uh we'll probably go out on a on a clip of that so uh mitch thank you so much for for taking the time to to speak with us here on transmissions it's been a real a real treat likewise really enjoyed it thank you man Thanks for joining us today on Transmissions. Uh, I know that we've got a lot of competition for your ears on the internet, so we're honored you've opted to listen to our program today. You can check out Mitch over on Medium and Twitter and Instagram and at MitchHorowitz.com. And then we've got links to some of that stuff in our show notes over at Aquarium Drunkard. You can support this podcast by checking out Aquarium Drunkard's Patreon page. I'm Jason P. Woodbury. I write, host, and produce the show. Our audio is edited by Andrew Horton, visual design by Sarah Goldstein, and our show is executive produced by Justin Gage, Aquarium Drunkard's founder. Don't miss his Aquarium Drunkard show every Wednesday night at 7 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on Sirius XMU. If you dig what we're doing, please rate, review, subscribe, and spread the word about transmissions. Uh, we have got a new episode for you next Wednesday. I'll be joined by the incredible Kate LeVon. I had such a fantastic time speaking with her, and I'm really excited to share that talk with you all. So be well until then. We'll speak again soon. Transmission concluded.